Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, good morning. Glad to be back with you all. So, for those of you that looked at the sermon title, it was not a typo, not a mistake. Those of you that are familiar with Latin may have an idea, or those with some idea of some church history may have some familiarity with it. But the title was Meritrix Contramundum, which is a, a harlot against the world. So <clears throat> let me give the background on that. So back in 325 AD, the church uh, gathered a council together, came to be known as the, the Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Nicaea was convened for one primary purpose. There was this theological dispute that had been going on for several years, uh, had started wars, and so they wanted to settle this theological debate. And so on one side, they had this older gentleman, uh, this older pastor within the church, uh, Irenaeus, and then you had on, I'm sorry, Arius, and then on this side, you had this younger guy, Athanasius. And so it would pit Arius against Athanasius at the Council of Nicaea. And Arius would hold to the position that Jesus had a definitive starting point. And so he was this created being. So he wasn't of the same essence or same being as God the Father. Athanasius, on the other side, said, no, that's heresy. And, you know, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit are all of the same essence. And so at the Council of Nicaea, they went through scripture, debated it, and landed on the biblical position that Athanasius was arguing for. And so you would think, okay, that settles it. Arius, you're teaching heresy. We've settled it. This is what the Bible teaches. But that didn't end it. That was their official position. But Arius would gain supporters, and Athanasius would end up being exiled multiple times, over and over and over and over again. Uh, and, and at times, it seemed that nobody else was holding the line for this biblical truth. And so as historians look back, as theologians look back, uh, they came to use the phrase Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, because he, he risked his life, he risked his livelihood, uh, was exiled by himself, alone into the wilderness. And so here's Athanasius taking this stand against essentially the entire world at some point. In our story today in Joshua 2, we'll see a similar situation, not with somebody as maybe venerated as Athanasius, but rather it's this woman named Rahab whose profession was as a prostitute, as a harlot. But she ends up making a stand against her known world at that time. Now, before we get into this passage and before we start to study it, let me try and persuade you or help you avoid making the error that so many times we make when we look at this passage. One, the first error is we'll read this passage 
and we'll start to debate the morality of Rahab's profession. Rahab was a harlot. She was a, a prostitute. So let's work through this. And then we'll start dealing with that. You know who doesn't deal with that is the Bible. The Bible here in this passage just rolls right past it. There was a prostitute. Her name was Rahab. Nothing about the morality of it. Elsewhere in Scripture, we'll talk about the morality of it. But here, that's not the point of this passage. You know, the author of Joshua 2 is not trying to teach you about sexual purity or, you know, what is marriage. Or That's not the point. So then the second thing that we get hung up on is the lie, right? So we're going to see that Rahab is going to lie to save the spies from Israel. And so then the debate starts to happen. Well, is it ever okay to lie? Are we ever justified in lying? Because God says, you know, he doesn't want us to lie. Let your guess be yes, your no be no. Don't be dishonest. So then, you know, was Rahab right or wrong? Well, again, Scripture doesn't condemn Rahab here in this passage for her lie. I mean, that's a, a debate for elsewhere. We also have to remember, who is this? This is a Gentile prostitute living in Jericho. You know, she doesn't have that type of knowledge. She hasn't understood the law of God uh, at this point. So don't fall into that trap. We can talk about lying. We can talk about sexual purity with other passages in Scripture. Here, this author of Joshua 2 has a different point in mind. So let me go ahead and read through the entire passage. We'll see our story in context, and then we'll come back through and we'll kind of break it apart. So it says, Joshua 2, verse 1, And Joshua... The son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the, the men went out. I did not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for if you overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them within the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what, did you, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, 
our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when Yahweh gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you. Hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you have let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills, passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, Yahweh has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So what, you know, you read this and you have to ask yourself, what is going on here? You know, looking back in history, when Israel first reached the promised land, they come out of Egypt, God sets them up at Sinai, establishes them as a nation, gives them their law, brings them to the land, and what was the first thing that they did? They sent spies into the land, and the spies return and say, there's no way we can take this land. You know, it's impossible. And two spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, we can do this. Because of their disobedience, the rest of the generation has to die off. And so they're all dead. They reach this point. They're ready to enter the promised land. And what do they do? They send spies into the land again. And so you have to ask yourself, what is Joshua thinking? Why would Joshua send? It didn't work out last time, Joshua. Why would you repeat it? Do they need to have spies? They don't need spies to go into the land. 
So why does Joshua send the spies into the land? I think he sends the spies into the land because God told him to send spies into the land. You know, Joshua is not freelancing. Joshua is not out there making this up on his own. He's already had this conversation with God in chapter one, right? That follow my word, follow my will. Don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right. Do what I tell you to do and everything will be well. So Joshua is not out there saying, I don't trust God. He trusts God and God told him, send the spies. And he says, all right, I'll send the spies. Didn't work out last time, God, but I'll do it because you've told me to. So he's doing it because God has given him this instruction. So why does God send the spies into the land? God doesn't need them to go into the land. We all know, most of us know the story of what's going to happen a few chapters from now. They're going to cross over the Jordan. They're going to get to Jericho. And what's their grand battle strategy for defeating Jericho? You know, they don't study this at West Point, trust me. They march around the city. March around the city. That's it. And then the city collapses. God brings the walls down and turns the city over to them. So God doesn't need the spies to go into the land for some sort of strategic purpose. He has some other intention. And his other intention is that these spies would go into the land with the sole purpose of meeting a prostitute named Rahab. That's the entire point and the entire purpose of this passage is that these spies would go in and meet this woman, Rahab. And so as we look at this passage, it really kind of like sets up as like a sandwich, right? So you have verses one through seven, which is the spies entering into the land, being a part of God's providential plan. And that's like that first slice of bread. Then you get verses 8 through 14, and that's like the inside, like the good part of a sandwich, right? You know, I mean, if you take the bread away, you still have a fairly decent meal. You take away the innards of a sandwich, you have bread, right, that needs something else. 8 through 14 is really the meat of this passage. And, and then from 15 through the end is the spies then leaving the land, and that's like the other piece of bread up on top. Right? And it forms like this nice little sandwich pointing everything towards the very middle part of 8 through 14, which is a confession by this woman, Rahab. So they enter into the land. Joshua sends the spies. They get there and they lodge with Rahab. And they start to have a conversation with her. And her conversation really revolves around her understanding of who Israel's God is. And she's going to, to essentially interact with Israel's God, with this Yahweh that has been guiding Israel. And so in, in uh, verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up on the roof and she starts to talk to them. And it says, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. 
And, and so there's an, a recognition by her of who Israel's God is. And it's not just some nebulous, your God, you know, or the God that leads you or your gods or she has an understanding and a knowledge of who Israel's God is. She calls him by name. She says, Yahweh, your God, Yahweh. I know about him. I've heard about him. And here in verse 10, she's going to make really this confession about the might of Yahweh. Look at what she says about him. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. You know, so her essentially institutional knowledge, her understanding of Israel isn't just, oh, we heard you're gathering on the other side of the Jordan, but it's a, we know from over 40 years ago that you all used to be enslaved in the greatest nation in this world, Egypt, and Yahweh, your God, brought you out of that. He brought you out of slavery. You were enslaved in Egypt. That doesn't happen. Countries don't just let millions of people walk away. Not only that, but when he brought you out of Egypt, he did it through the Red Sea. You don't go through the Red Sea. You know, that just doesn't happen. And so we heard that he brought you through the Red Sea. And then he sustained you as you've been on this journey. Not sure why it's taken you so long, but on this journey that you're making this way. And we know that you've laid out some destruction on your way here, that you've put towns and other kings to destruction and to death. So I know about the might of your Yahweh. And if you think about it, Rahab's confession that she makes, this confession by an Old Testament Gentile prostitute in Jericho is really, really, really similar to the confession that we make as Christians today that everybody that becomes a Christian almost kind of follows the same pattern that Rahab will. I mean, you don't have faith in God unless you've heard about God. Unless you know who he is, you've heard about him. And so there's an understanding of who this God is and the works that he's done and the might that he has. And if there's not a recognition of the might of God, then you'd never move to faith. I mean, that's what separates those that are believers and those that are not believers. Those that are gonna place their faith in God, place their faith in him because they've heard of the works that he's done and they choose to trust in that. And that's what Rahab does. Rahab says, okay, look, I understand all of the gods that we worship here in our land. I know all their stories, and I've heard the story of Yahweh, your God. And your God is a mighty, mighty God. And so then her recognition of the might 
of Yahweh, then leads into to verse 11, where she makes this confession about the majesty of Yahweh. And so in verse 11, she says, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And so she, she understands, recognizes all the works that Yahweh has done. She's not placing a blind faith in him. She understands who he is, recognizes his might, and then she recognizes his majesty. You know, we heard of everything he's done, and we're afraid. And, and we know from other places in Scripture, fear, fear of the Lord is the beginning, right? And, and so she has that fear, a, a right, just, responsible fear of this Yahweh that is now at her doorstep. And she says that your God is the God in the heavens above and on the earth below. She's making this confession that there are no other gods above Yahweh. And her statement really treats Yahweh as the singular deity, as this singular entity. So in essence, she says, everything that we worship, everything that we have here in Jericho are just trinkets. These are all nothing. And Yahweh is the only one worthy of worship above and below wherever you go. And so there's this recognition of the might and then also the majesty, which then leads her to make a confession of the mercy of Yahweh. So recognizing that he has this might and that he has this majesty, and she also understands that there has to be a measure of mercy and why would she think that she would find any sort of mercy from this Yahweh? I mean, it makes no sense. Here she is in an enemy position. Why would she find mercy? She doesn't know. You know, so many of those pagan gods at the time, they were just like angry gods. They didn't have mercy. You were just trying to avoid their anger, trying to avoid upsetting them. I mean, that was half of you know, the, the sacrifices that you would make were not to, uh, you know, bring favor, but rather it was just to keep them from being too angry so that you could then live your life kind of under the radar. But rather, she's going to say in verses 12 and 13 that this Yahweh can be merciful. Look at verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh. So make an oath by Yahweh, in this God that I've already confessed is the only God above, the only God below, that I know the works that he's done. So you're gonna confess on his name because if you don't follow it up and you don't stay true to your oath, then I know Yahweh is going to deal with you. And so she says, swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me. 
that, that you will show me mercy and grant me this mercy. And so she places her life and her faith and her trust in Yahweh, this God of Israel that she has heard about, that she's never met, that she hasn't studied in depth within the scriptures, but that she's heard about and she recognizes that this is the God that I need to worship. And this is, again, the same confession that as Christians we make today. We, we hear about God, we hear the works that he's done, then we recognize his majesty, that you know, not only has he done all these things in the past, but he still is doing them today and he's worthy of worship, which then leads us to seek mercy from him and to ask him, save us from our sin. Save us, essentially, from your destruction. Because Rahab was in the same position that every unbeliever today is in. She's sitting in a city in her comfortable world facing the wrath of Yahweh. And all unbelievers today are sitting in their comfortable world, living their life with their gods, facing the wrath of Yahweh. If they don't, turn and repent. And so, why did God send the spies to Jericho? He didn't need to send them for strategy. He sent them so that these spies could come and hear this confession from Rahab so that these spies would go back and convey this confession to Joshua. Here's what's happened to us. Here's what this lady, this prostitute in this city told us. And here's what she's asked us to do for her. She's asked for mercy. She's, in essence, asked to become a part of the people of God, to be brought into the household of Israel. And so Israel, as they go forward in time, is able to look back at the mercy of God. And so you get to a story like Ruth, and here's Ruth and Naomi coming back, and Ruth is hearing the stories and reading the stories, and you don't think that Ruth knows the story of Rahab? And if Rahab was able to be brought into the household of Israel, then there's a chance for me to be brought into the household of Israel. There's a chance for me to find mercy and salvation. And Ruth makes her great confession, you know, similar to the confession that Rahab is making. I know your God. You know, I'll worship your God. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. You know, allow me to become a part of this. And this confession, this call for mercy is really the evidence of a genuine faith. You know, because if you don't have a recognition of God's might, if you don't have a recognition of God's majesty, it's never going to lead you to seek his mercy. And if you're seeking his mercy, you're saying that he's mighty enough to grant that mercy, that he's majestic enough to grant that mercy, and that he's made promises in the past to grant that mercy. 
And so you're leaning on those promises and saying to him, God, make an oath with me. I'm placing my faith in you. Grant me salvation. Free me from sin and allow me to then be in a relationship with you. We make that same confession that Rahab was making. It's amazing that here's this woman that is living in a a foreign city, this pagan city, and she recognizes that this terrible storm is coming. This destructive storm is coming. And she's terrified of it. She trembles. She says, we melted because of it. So she's not the only one. And as we eventually, at some point in history, some point in time, we'll get to uh, chapter 5. We'll see she's not the only one that's afraid, that there are kings and people that are all terrified. But there's something that separates her from the rest of them. She doesn't just sit in her fear and, and awe of God and just say, well, that's it. You know, he's a scary guy. But then she turns and asks for that mercy. So Rahab serves as an object lesson for Israel. But more importantly, it serves to show us that redemptive nature of God. If God takes the time to send spies, takes a break in his plan to send these spies to save this Gentile Amorite prostitute, you don't think that he can take the time to then save you and to save your family and to save those that you work with and to save anyone within this world. We see within Rahab that nobody is beyond God's reach. Israel loses sight of this. Israel becomes so inward focused just on them and that it's this hereditary thing and it's just passed down through the the genes and if you're born with Israel, then you're Israel. Forgetting the lessons of Rahab and Ruth and those that were brought into the fold. We turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Verses 4 through 6. And giving the, the lineage of Christ. And it says, uh, And Ram, the father of Animadad, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Solomon, Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. So, why did God send the spies? so that he could save Rahab. I mean, that's the entire reason that Joshua chapter 2 exists, so that we could see the salvation provided to Rahab, so that then Rahab could give birth to a child that would eventually be married to uh, Ruth, 
who would then give birth to another child, and ultimately to David, who would establish the line all the way down to Christ, who would then bring that promised salvation to the world. The story of Rahab shows that no one is beyond salvation. Romans tells us that we've all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. Doesn't matter if you're a computer engineer, a construction worker, a prostitute, a pastor, whatever. Every single one of us has sinned and every single one of us has fallen short and everyone, every single one of us needs that mercy of a mighty, majestic Yahweh. Dear Lord, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful for your faithfulness and your promise-keeping nature that, like Rahab, we turn to you and recognize you as the only God in heaven, the only God on earth, the only God worthy of worship, the only God majestic enough. We turn to you in mercy. We pray for ourselves that you would fulfill the promises that you made, the promises of the new covenant, that you would soften our hearts, that you would bring us alive in you, and that you would bring us into your family, that you would adopt us as your children with all the rights and inheritances that come along with that. I pray that you would give us a, a hope and a joy as we look towards the future and the ultimate fulfillment of those promises. I pray that you would encourage us as we go out into the world and as we deal with uh, those, on a, those people on a day-to-day -day basis that we would bring that message of salvation, that message of hope that you provided that we wouldn't view individuals as beyond your reach, as lost to the void, but as people that are waiting to hear, people that need to hear, and people that need to turn to you and make a confession of faith. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, Visit us at CascadesBibleChurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.